Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. This is an iHeart Original. I started working on an Asian American social networking site with a couple friends out of my one-bedroom apartment in Midtown Manhattan. And we launched Asian Avenue in the summer of 1997. And that was the beginning of the journey. Back then, you had to buy your own servers, your own computers to host the site. And so I had to raise, you know, $300,000 from friends and family just to buy servers to host the traffic. And every time we buy a server, it felt like it was going to crash again because there was so much traffic. We realized, wow, I think what we're on onto something is something that really works. I'm Joanne McNeil, and this is Main Accounts, the story of MySpace. In this week's episode, we're going to look at the internet communities that were thriving before MySpace came along. Why was it that MySpace got ahead when there was strong competition from other social networks at the time? Episode two, Dialed Up. Let me give you the briefest of all possible brief histories of the internet before MySpace. Way back in the 60s, the government threw money at a secretive project. It may or may not have been created to preserve files in the event of a nuclear attack. Depends on who you ask. Anyway, in 1969, this top-secret network, ARPANET, was released to select defense department and university researchers around the country. More and more people joined ARPANET over the course of the decade, and a lot of them tickered with it to make it better. They developed things like email and forums and ways for people to chat with each other. ARPANET was the internet. Meanwhile, there was another breakthrough in the 70s. Computers got personal. Computers used to be giant contraptions that filled an entire room. But with these new Commodore PETs, TRS-80s, Apple IIs, you could carry a computer home with you in a box. People started using these PCs to get in touch with one another over networks. 
Dialing up and connecting over telephone wires, they were talking to each other with BBS, bulletin board services, and the email and forums on what was still known as ARPANET until 1980. Imagine a world where every word ever written, every picture ever painted, and every film ever shot could be viewed instantly in your home via an information superhighway, a high-capacity digital communications network. Fast forward to the 90s, and the internet became known as the information superhighway. The excitement in the air, a lot of it had to do with money. E-commerce was going mainstream. Internet R&D that had been government-supported was being replaced with private companies, including commercial online service providers like Prodigy, CompuServe, and... America Online. You've got mail. It was the number one internet provider in 1997. Even if you weren't using it, AOL was inescapable. Discs to set up AOL were everywhere. Flooding your mailbox, tucked in magazines, in cereal boxes. AOL and other services were walled gardens. Someone on Prodigy wasn't able to chat in AOL chat rooms. Likewise, someone with an AOL account couldn't join in discussions on CompuServe message boards. It would be like if you couldn't text your friends because they have T-Mobile and you're on AT&T. While AOL was dominating the 90s internet, the World Wide Web, a decentralized, non-commercial service that anybody can access or use, was also taking off. While AOL users, or Prodigy users, were siloed from each other, everyone had access to the World Wide Web. Everyone on the internet could view a website. Websites were easy to set up and dynamic, with simple code to display graphics and images. It was on the web that you got social networks, online shopping, search engines like Google, because everyone could access websites regardless of whether they logged in with AOL or another ISP. So the first version of web, really 1.0, was like static content, the information superhighway kind of phrase they used, like to use back then. That's Benjamin's son. He runs a venture capital firm in New York these days. At the start of his career, the World Wide Web was brand new. I joined Merrill Lynch, um, became an analyst. When I was going through training, a company called Netscape went public. And I think I remember asking uh, a coworker, like, what's a web browser? <laughs> uh, yeah, because even back in college, we didn't even use email back then. Ben figured out what a web browser was and instantly saw the potential. And I was like, oh, yeah, like community is going to migrate to the web. And as someone that grew up Asian American in New York City, you think real world communities going online. Ben could see how online communities on BBS or AOL might transition to the new context of the World Wide Web. And he understood that some of the best online communities targeted audiences with a shared identity. And when I think about communities, communities around race or ethnicity are strong, some of the strongest affinity groups you can think of. So I said, well, why don't I work on a company that's going to actually take real world communities and move them onto the web? There were companies called like GeoCities or Tripod, but those were like free web pages. But no one was tying this idea of like identity and community and really connecting people the way we were doing. Ben could see what others maybe couldn't. And he took a big risk. 
Working out of Ben's one-bedroom apartment, the team built out features they hoped would attract users. Asian Avenue launched in 1997. It was an overnight success. And I remember when we went live, you know, the first member joined and I actually like messaged her. I'm like, hey, how'd you hear about us? She's like, I've been waiting for the site to go up for months because we had a coming soon page. I'm not even sure how she found it. And it was a 16 year old girl. Her family was from Laos originally, they immigrated from Laos. So she's Laotian and she lived in, I think, in Dallas, Texas. The reason why she was so excited to join was that she lived in a community where there actually weren't that many other Asian Americans and especially Laotians. And she was just so eager to try to connect with people. And we just saw this, like, without any marketing, we just saw this real kind of steady growth of people coming in, looking for that possibility to connect. About 18% of households in the U.S. had internet access in 1997, and that number was swiftly growing. Asian Avenue was a destination for people who were just figuring out what the World Wide Web could do. So we had people fill out profile pages. We allowed them to write a profile, what school they went to, neighbors that they grew up, interests, hobbies. They can search for other people in the community. We had a web-based instant messenger. We had a way to message each other directly. We had chat rooms, we had message boards. Um, and we had this functionality of adding someone as a friend, which was very new. Friends and messaging people might sound a lot like the social media we use now, but this was a big moment in internet history. It was new and exciting. And you have to remember that technology in the 90s had limitations. Dial up was slow, and devices were expensive. A digital camera could cost hundreds of dollars. This is why the internet was still, at this point, mostly text-based. Asian Ave, as a small community-based effort, found a way to work around these challenges. But a lot of people didn't have a digital camera. We said, you can mail us your photos and we'll scan it in for you. And literally, we had people like mailing photos to scan it in for us. To put that in perspective, today it might take Mark Zuckerberg 2.9 billion minutes to manually scan all the profile photos of Facebook users. Probably not humanly possible. And it was happening at a time when people really didn't share much of their lives on the internet. Then it all started really just snowballing where you just saw people get more comfortable over time just sharing more photos or writing more content about themselves and then actually posting up photos of people getting together and gathering. And then you hear people being couples and then eventually people getting married and eventually people having kids. And you're like wow, this is real. It can actually have this dramatic impact on people's lives. These people might have been complete strangers before they met on Asian Ave. And that's why they were there. They were open to meeting new people and using the community to be seen and found by others. Asian Avenue touched a nerve. Users were signing up fast. The company raised money from family and friends and bought servers to support the site's growing traffic. And every time we buy a server, it felt like it was going to crash again because there was so much traffic. We realized, wow, I think we're on to something that really works. 
Hey guys, LeVar Arrington here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck. Like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design. The Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrified horsepower farther than ever before or check out the fully redesigned tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style the new tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true and with new available tech this legendary truck is getting even better and when you buy a toyota truck you buy toyota dependability meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future so visit your local toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit Visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. In 1999, AOL was still the largest ISP in the country, and it would be years before MySpace would launch. Meanwhile, investors had taken notice of Asian Avenue. After raising $1.5 million in private equity, the company was in a great position to expand. Ben reached out to Omar Wazo, who had previously founded a service called New York Online. Together, they came up with a new venture, Black Planet. The idea was to use the Asian Avenue model to create a community destination for Black internet users. Despite their track records, the social network wasn't an easy sell to investors. When I started pitching investors, basically got laughed out of the room. These investors in Silicon Valley said, black people and the internet? I couldn't go raise money because I couldn't get anyone to believe me that there were going to be black people on the internet. But he showed the investors were wrong. I think 2,000 people put their emails in before we launched, um, which we're not even sure why and how they stumbled upon it. You know, we sent an email out to the 2,000 people to say, hey, the site's up. And then like people started telling their friends. And the next couple of days, we couldn't believe how much traffic was coming in. It was an instant hit just like Asian Ave. And soon, Black Planet was part of mainstream pop culture. And it was all like word of mouth. And so, you know, Omar and I would get calls from people and be like, hey, I heard your ads on Hot 97, you know, hip-hop station here in New York. And I'm like, we're not running ads on Hot 97. And it's because all the DJs joined Black Planet and we're giving shout-outs to Black Planet members on the out. At one point, I remember someone called me up and they said, how much did they pay Kanye to rap about Black Planet? I'm like, I don't know Kanye. And in Kanye's breakout album, College Dropout, he has a song where he raps about, you know, picking up girls in college on Black Planet with Talib Kweli. Now who the hell is this? Emailing me at 11.26 Telling me that she 36.26 Plus double D, you nine girls on Black Planet B when they get bubbly. Most of the internet at the time was built for a default white user made by white developers, funded by white investors. Black Planet and Asian Avenue showed how diverse the internet actually was. They were a hit because they recognized the many internet users of color and made space for these communities. Within its first year, Black Planet had more than a million users. Here's Omar Wazo explaining their success in an interview with C-SPAN. With our first site, Black Planet, we were 
part of why it took off like wildfire is we were giving people things like, you know, easy instant messaging, easy chat rooms, easy ways to create profile pages of themselves, ways to post on message boards, all things that are totally standard now. But for a while, that was something you paid $20 a month for on AOL, and there was no good version of it on the web. How many non-blacks use Black Planet? Um, the site is about 90% African-American, so it's, it's, you know, it's open to anybody, but, uh, but it's really, it's, it's a, you know, like any community. It's really people come there because they enjoy interacting with the other members. Black Planet and Asian Avenue knew their audience. The founders were part of this audience. Business was great, but what they couldn't control was the broader market. In 2000, the dot-com bubble, as it was known, began to pop. 11 a.m., NASDAQ in freefall. Online companies are collapsing on a daily basis. To their lowest price in a year. Down 155 points. Plunged. Billions of dollars. Shocking. Pets.com and e-stamp. Incinerating tens of thousands of jobs. And the carnage is just beginning. Internet stocks plummeted. Hundreds of internet companies went out of business between 2000 and 2001. Investors became wary. Anything to do with tech seemed like a risky bet. Ben and his companies had been selling ads, but it wasn't enough. They needed a more solid revenue model. Ben looked around and noticed which companies were making money. He landed on one, Match.com, which had launched just a few years earlier. And we said, why don't we create a separate dating area on the site, let people create dating profiles and we charge a subscription. And so we launched that in 2001 and it saved the business. Ben's company survived the dot-com crash and led a new wave of internet businesses. What became known as Web 2.0, user-generated content and connections between people over the web, like blogs and social networks. Soon enough, a new competitor showed up on the scene. You may not know about Friendster. Friendster was founded in Silicon Valley by Jonathan Abrams in 2002 and opened to the public in 2003. I joined Friendster when like nobody was on it. I was Friendster number 225 or something. This is Katie Natopoulos. She's a tech reporter at BuzzFeed News and was Friendster user number 225 or something like that. She wasn't super active on the site at first. There wasn't much to do on it yet, but soon enough, it started to pick up. Sort of, I remember like the spring of 2003, summer 2003, I feel like that's when a lot of my other friends, and it seemed like a lot of people started using Friendster. So I loved Friendster. I thought it was like so much fun because it was the first sort of social network experience that I had participated in. It is one of the fastest growing sites on the internet with millions of registered users so far. Why so popular? Because it shows the world is not such a big and unfriendly place after all. Friendster was a lot like Asian Avenue and Black Planet, with profile pages and ways to message people. But its defining feature was that Friendster made your community of online friends visible. And this allowed you to see the chain of connections between you and any other Friendster user. Imagine it's summer of 2003, and you're looking up people on Friendster who are fans of the movie Videodrome. You enter a movie you like in the Friendster search box and see anyone in the world with it listed on their profile page. The search brings you to Janet's page, 
She's 26 years old and lives in Chicago. In the top right-hand corner, there's a graphic that shows your friend Matt is friends with Angela, who's friends with Janet. So she's really just someone you're only a few parties away from meeting IRL anyway, right? Maybe you want to reach out to Janet. But age and location and favorite movies or books alone don't show what a person is like, whether you'd actually want to be friends with them or ask them out on a date. For that, you could scan a user's testimonials. So testimonials on Friendster were, it's its such a funny phrase or word that Friendster encouraged you to do. People would sort of write these in like the third person about the, you know, for they would say, you know, Joanne is just the greatest friend and a really special and funny person. And I hope you all know how wonderful she really is. And I think she's just awesome. And we had so much fun at the lake this summer. You could compare testimonials to what someone might have written in a high school yearbook. I remember like, writing these just really, like, heartfelt and, like, thoughtful things. But also, like, you wanted to be really funny, too. Like, I remember, like, a lot of pressure to be, like, funny. Like, I wanted to do something, like, hilarious and ironic. Like, you know, I mean, also, like, you know, I was 22, so I was, like, kind of stupid. If you were on Friendster, looking at random people's pages and messaging them, it was likely that you were there for dating. This is why Friendster always felt like it was meant to be a dating site a little bit. And it kind of seemed like it was asking your friends to sort of give you endorsements or Yelp reviews in the way that maybe LinkedIn does now or something. Ben's son also got an invite to explore Friendster in its first year. And I remember the first time someone sent me an email and they said, hey, you should check out this thing. It's, it's, it's in beta, but here's a password to get in. And I checked it out and I was like, all right, it's coming. And Friendster launched and there was like this big wave of, you know, Friendster users. And we said, okay, competition is, is, is the beginning of like real competition. Four months after its launch, Friendster had a million users. It had taken Black Planet a year to reach that many users. And it was just the beginning. Hey guys, Rob Parker here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like the rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style the new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true and with the new available tech this legendary truck is getting even better and when you buy a Toyota truck you buy Toyota dependability meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future so visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Perhaps Friendster grew too fast. The website was not equipped to receive the traffic that was pouring in day after day. So people were really frustrated by the glitchy and buggy experience on Friendster, and it was constantly like dropping out. 
And so sort of slowly people kept being like, well, there's this other sort of alternative to Friendster that it functions much more smoothly called MySpace. You should sign up. We should all go over to MySpace because it doesn't, you know, bug out in the same way that Friendster does. It doesn't have all these glitches and stuff. Social networks aren't fun when you're waiting around for pages to load. And I really liked Friendster. Like I had already sort of, you know, found all my friends on there and I was having fun and like I like kind of didn't want to have to like start over even though like this had probably been about 18 months tops of being on this one platform um but eventually it seemed like a critical mass of my friends were all you know moving over to MySpace whenever there would be a friends outage so that's why eventually I signed up MySpace officially launched in August of 2003 it was started by Krista Wolf and Tom Anderson. You remember them from the previous episode at a company called eUniverse. They took inspiration from sites like Friendster and Asian Avenue when they built it. There were only 100,000 MySpace users in October of 2003. But the following year, having picked up a sizable number of dissatisfied Friendster users, the site exploded to 5 million users. This week, MySpace became the most visited website in the United States, overtaking Yahoo and Google. This is now officially the MySpace era. MySpace had its biggest day ever with 4.3 billion page views with a B. That was in one day. There was definitely like this sort of awkward um, transition period where my friends seemed to be on both platforms and trying to figure out which was the more useful one to be. And I think that period didn't last too long because it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that MySpace was a lot more popular than Friendster and Friendster was, you know, continuing to glitch and die out. Like Friendster, MySpace encouraged a lot of repetitive behavior. Let's say you have a crush on someone. Now, obviously, you're going to be checking their page like five times a day to see if there's any new comments or any, you know, what are they up to, you know? If you really had a specific interest in someone and you wanted to find out, like, what's going on in their life, like, who are they talking to? You had to be, like, on their page looking at all their stuff all the time, you know? It's a big time suck. A lot of work. A lot of work having to crush on MySpace. You'd go to someone's page to see if they were in a relationship or not, if they were listing new bands under their favorite music or different movies on their profiles, just like Friendster. But here's where the two biggest social networks in the early aughts were not the same. On Friendster, users related to each other as a chain of connections. Your friend Matt knows Angela, who knows Janet. But on MySpace, it didn't really matter if people were your friends or strangers or real or fake. You added whomever you wanted. You showed other people on MySpace who really mattered to you by selecting users for your top eight. For young people, that is, there's a lot of, a lot of mental math and calculation into who your favorite eight <laughs> friends are going to be because, you know, the perception of, of, who, you know, you want to show the world um, those people are and stuff. And you would, you know, watch your other friends to see, oh, have they, you know, Susie just took out 
Luke from her top eight. I guess they must have broken up. Top eight created competition. It encouraged users to curate their friends and spotlight people or bands that reflected on their personalities and personal taste. MySpace was loose. It was crazy and energetic, from the glittery, sleazy design to the carefree way people communicated on it. MySpace felt like a party on the internet. It made Friendster look like online banking or some government-run database in comparison. People talked more casually on MySpace, even in testimonials. You would just kind of like say like, hey, what's up? Or like, hey, what are you doing Friday night? You know, you would kind of use it as a, like almost like a DM method. By the way, all of this was written in hot pink and white font over a black background. MySpace, unlike Friendster, allowed you to sort of tweak the HTML on your profile page so that you could, you know, change the color of the background or, you know, have a song playing when people looked at your page. Um, Which, you know, honestly, was very annoying. Um, But people were, you know, put a lot of thought into what song they were going to pick and stuff. Like, it was really fun spending a lot of time on your own profile. You know, it's kind of like, It's fun spending a lot of time getting dressed, you know, for a big night out and doing your hair. You know, I think that, like, people like that aspect of it. It's a little bit narcissistic. Ben's son also noticed that MySpace was tapping into the new possibilities of Web 2.0 with its customizable pages. So people put all these photos and scrolling text and, you know, text that would blink and, like, I mean... Everyone thought they were like the best designer in the world. In reality, most people were terrible designers. <laughs> so yes, it's like you allow how allow people to have self-expression, but in reality, like the experience was like pretty junked up. Traffic on MySpace was growing every day to the detriment of Ben's companies. We definitely saw an impact on traffic because we realized Asian Black Latinos, like, yes, they want to be part of their own communities, but they also want to interact broadly, more broadly, with people out there. And now we get let you connect with your white friends and your Arabic friends and et cetera, et cetera. Ben had ideas about ways to create connections between the communities on Black Planet and Asian Ave. But these sites were designed for a specific community first, rather than the whole world. When people would sometimes critique us on like, oh, are you promoting, you know, racial divides? You know, we would say, look, Absolutely not. Like, we would tell you, I would tell you as an Asian American, having a good understanding of your own identity and your own community, first and foremost, is so important for you to be open to understanding other people's identity and communities. And that's what we were doing within Asian Avenue was allowing people to actually better understand their community and themselves. When MySpace grew rapidly, Asian Avenue began to lose that community. You really kind of saw MySpace start kind of really leapfrogging us in traffic. Users who had frequented both sites began to go to MySpace for the kind of conversations they would have had on Asian Ave or Black Planet. Investors were flocking to MySpace over Black Planet and Asian Avenue too. And Ben's business began to slow down. I think, you know, as it goes with tech and almost anything else, but especially tech, you know, being first doesn't mean that you're going to be the winner. And MySpace even proved that out. And in fact, in a lot of ways, you're kind of 
trying to leapfrog the other person and using what you see currently and saying, well, this is pretty good, but how do I make it even that much better? In a lot of ways, you know, because you're early, um, sometimes that could be a hindrance in terms of long term, in terms of, you know, eventually getting leapfrogged because people take your ideas, get smarter about it. And then sometimes you're kind of left in a tough position being the existing player because you have years of millions of lines of code and then you have to like retool it while someone says, I get to start from scratch. Um, so that's just a big advantage sometimes that you get in technology. Ben's social network stuck around for a while. He eventually decided to sell for around $38 million, 11 years after he and some friends had started it from his Manhattan apartment. Still, Asian Avenue set the stage for the world we live in today. Ben's work was visionary. I think we're especially proud that behind the scenes at the very dawn of social networking sites was this little company out of New York focused on, you know, minorities um, that really kind of set the movement. And we're pretty proud of that. Asian Ave had a focus and commitment to its users, but it lost out. Friendster, on the other hand, had a more circuitous journey. After losing its American audience, the company became a hit in Southeast Asia. In 2008, it was the most visited website in both the Philippines and Indonesia. Nonetheless, the company officially shuttered in 2018. By 2006, MySpace was the biggest website in the world with over 100 million users. Not only was MySpace huge, the platform was making people on it famous. These sort of, you know, proto-influencers and people just want to see pictures of them, which is like totally normal. I mean, one of the most exciting things about MySpace was that you could just see what other kids looked like. <laughs> you know, like I think we sort of take for granted a little bit that that was not really po like possible to see what, you know, kids in the next town or the next state looked like you know, in high school, that what what are they wearing? What kind of hairdos do they have? Like, do they want to be my boyfriend? You know, like that was really exciting for teenagers and young people. And that didn't really exist in a broad way before. More on this in the next episode of Main Accounts, the story of MySpace. Thank you to our guests, Ben Sun and Katie Natopoulos. Thanks for listening to Main Accounts, the story of MySpace, an iHeart original podcast. Main Accounts, The Story of MySpace, is written and hosted by me, Joanne McNeil. Editing and sound design by Mike Coscarelli and Mary Dew. Original music by Elise McCoy. Mixing and mastering by Josh Fisher. Research and fact-checking by Austin Thompson, Jocelyn Sears, and Marissa Brown. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Special thanks to Ryan Murdoch, Grace Fuse, and Bahid Frazier. Our associate producer is Lauren Phillip. Our senior producer is Mike Coscarelli. And our executive producer is Jason English. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Sadly, my MySpace page is no longer around. But you can find me on Twitter at Joe Mick. Let us hear your MySpace story. And check out my book, Lurking. Main accounts, the story of MySpace is a production of iHeart Podcasts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.